turn now to the Song of Solomon, and we'll be getting back into that series again. It's been a long time after I was away for my extended travels, and then we had, uh, I had the uh, quarantine time after that, and then we did the special series on the prodigal son for a few weeks. So getting back into this, I was saying to some of the people in Halifax, I don't think it's the case here, but some people didn't even know we were doing the Song of Solomon probably that were there. So <laughs> we're getting back to that. We stopped at the beginning of chapter 5. It's kind of a weird chapter division there. 5-1 goes with chapter 4, and so 5-2 is where we are picking up today. But I want to begin, since it has been a while, with a little review but I want to remind you what this song is all about. It's an allegory about our relationship, the relationship of Jesus Christ with his church. It presents him as a bridegroom and we, the church, as his bride. It's a very encouraging book because in a way that no other book does, it tells us about his ardent love for us and our responsive love for him. I find it very sad that many have interpreted this book in a way that is alien to the way it had always been interpreted in these modern times that they have interpreted in a different way. And it's very, it's something we need so much today because we don't, we don't realize the, the, the great love, the affection and delight that Jesus has for his church. And, and this book brings it out as no other book does really. A lot of the Ancients called it the holy of holies of the scripture. It's a very, very, it stands out as something that is very, very sacred to us. It shows how he delights in us and in our love for him and how he yearns for intimacy with us. As it says in Isaiah 62.5, it gives, Isaiah 62.5 is kind of a summary of this whole, this whole book. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He rejoices in us. He's not just, he doesn't just tolerate us or just put up with us, but he rejoices in us. The scripture takes up this analogy of Christ as the bridegroom and us as the bride again and again. When John the baptizer presented Jesus, he spoke of Christ as the bridegroom who has come to take the church as his wife, to redeem her by his blood and to sanctify her with his spirit. John said, I baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And John called himself the friend of the bridegroom, the best man who rejoiced to see this, this marriage take place, so to speak, or this potential marriage. In Ephesians 5, Paul explains when writing about marriage that in doing so, he can't not but speak of the the mystery of, of Christ, who is the, the bridegroom and we the bride. For, from the beginning of marriage was, has been a picture of the relationship with Christ to his people, and now Christ has been fully revealed. And when you come to the end of the Bible, at Revelation, and it speaks of the last day, then what happens there? That's actually the big wedding day when the bride is presented to her husband as one who is without spot and blemish. And he takes her to, into his father's house forever and ever to be his own and to share the inheritance that, that he obtained for us when he became flesh and dwelt among us. She, that she might dwell with him forever and ever. 
Many modern commentators are squeamish about speaking of the intense affection of Christ for us with the allegory of marriage. They say, oh, that's not, that, that's not really appropriate, but especially because the intimacy of the marriage bed is often spoken of in, in the Song of Solomon. They say, well, that can't be a, uh, an allegory about Christ and his church. Well, yes, it can be. It is. It seems too much, too strong, but we, we need to see that there is no better analogy than this to express the deep affection that Jesus Christ has for his people. Interestingly, the bride, as spoken of in this song, is one bride, and yet, as we've seen, she's made up of many members. So you, we actually see one member encouraging the others to come and enjoy her husband with her. A bride doesn't do, an ordinary bride doesn't do that. Oh, come, yeah, come and come to my bedroom with the husband. You know, come and enjoy him with me. That's, that's not something that you do. This is an analogy about the, this bride that is one in many. It's one of the many things that show us that this is not about ordinary marriage. Even the ancient Jews before Christ came largely understood this to speak of the coming Messiah. Most of the early and medieval church fathers and pretty much all of the reformers and the Puritans understood it with delight in this way. It was one of their favorite books. I kind of mentioned that earlier. It's only been in modern times that exegetes have sought to abolish the allegory and find in it nothing more than a love poem celebrating marriage. And sometimes among the unbelieving scholars celebrating it as an illicit romance that's going on where it's not even married people. While while there is much to learn about marriage in this song, there is much more to learn about the precious relationship we have with Christ. When we look at the relationship we have with Christ, we learn a lot about marriage. But how much more important it is for us to learn about Christ. If it's not about that, then this is a book that has very little to say about him. As we have progressed through this song, we have seen how it speaks of the many different experiences that we have with Christ as his bride. There's a realism here. We have seen her at one time yearning for his kisses. We have seen her at another time beside herself because of the lavish outpouring of his love that she can't even bear it. It's so much. She's seeing the the height and depth and breadth and length of his love. We have seen her ashamed of her shortcomings before him in one instance and in another instance joyfully presenting her fruits to him for him to enjoy. Isn't that how it is with us? Sometimes we're all... Oh, you know, we can't hardly look at, upon the Lord. And other times we're, you know, very thankful that God has changed us and we're, we're, we're celebrating and we're filled with joy about that before him, knowing that he actually delights in the fruit that, that we have brought forth. We see him at one time leaping across the mountains to come to her like a stag. And then other times we see her bemoaning the fact that he is absent and she can't find him. We had that back in chapter 3, and it's here again in what we're getting ready to read in, in chapter 5. We're reminded that a living relationship with Christ is not static. It's something that has to be carefully guarded and cherished and uh, looked after. Just as a marriage between any two people, you have to maintain and, and, and pursue it and stay after it, stay on top of it or it's going to decay. When we left off at chapter 5, verse 1, Christ had been telling his bride how enraptured he was with her, praising her, 
and enjoying the fruits that she brought forth as something that was very precious to him. In 4.9, just before that, he spoke of being ravished with her love, with even one look of love for, from her eyes. Indeed, if we have any true love for Christ, it is a marvelous thing because it is the result of his gracious, redeeming work, and it's that which is going to grow into perfection. So when he sees even a tiny little bit of fruit, he knows that that is an indication that that, that is his work. It can only be there because of his work and that it will grow up into fullness and completeness. Yes, if you're a believer, even though you may feel that your fruit has much to be desired, and it does, doesn't it? He takes great delight that it is there at all. It's proof that he has redeemed you and that he is in you. In 4.16, we saw how she was thrilled to have him enjoying her and wanted her spices to flow out. She prayed that the wind would blow upon her so that the spices would flow out for his enjoyment, to which he responded that he was already tasting those spices and even sharing them with his friends, which we talked about angels and ministers uh, and parents ministering to their children, all delighting the fruit that they see and with Christ and their children or, or their members. She was thrilled to be always his. She couldn't fathom then how she could ever tire of pouring herself out for him. My life is for him. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted with him. That was, that was her attitude. But where we come today in chapter 5, verse 2, we see that something has happened to her affection. Her warm affection has cooled down, and she knows it. She describes her condition here, and then as the text unfolds, she tells how he came to restore her and of all that transpired from that. It gets actually pretty complicated, and we're not going to get into all of it today, but I do want to read the whole section to you to give you the overall context of what lies ahead. We're actually only going to cover verses 2 through 4 today, and kind of touch on five, just a tiny bit, verse five. But uh, so again, I'll read all the way to six three. So we're starting in five two, Song of Solomon five two, and reading to six three. This is the word of the living God. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, "Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew." my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among ten thousand. His head is like the finest gold. 
His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory and laid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. There we end the reading of God's word. So you see the evangelism that goes on here as she goes out looking for her beloved, and then they say, where is he gone? And she basically now knows where he is. He's to be found in his church, caring for his people. And these daughters go with her to enjoy him with her. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching now of his holy and infallible word. You see at the opening of our reading, chapter 5 and verse 2, how the bride describes her current spiritual state. She says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. Let's unpack that a little bit. She is aware that her affection for Jesus, her husband, has cooled off. She has grown drowsy and sluggish. She is sleeping in that she is no longer pursuing him as she once was, no longer delighting in him, no longer yearning for him, no longer pointing out or pouring out her affection for him. She is no longer particularly moved by the way the book of Hebrews, for example, would describe our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the, 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 you know what the main theme of Hebrews is? The whole book is about Christ is better. If you want to put it in simple words, Christ is better. And she doesn't, that, that doesn't mean anything to her anymore much. Better than the angels. Better than any, any Aaronic priest. Better than Moses. Better than any other sacrifice for sin. He, proves, he provides a better salvation with better promises a better inheritance, a better rest, a better way to God. He is a better provider, a better savior, a better comforter, a better encourager, a better worship leader, a better king, a better teacher, a better admonisher, a better example, a better helper, a better lover. He is better. Christ is better. But now she yawns when she thinks of him. It doesn't mean much to her how she has changed from what she once was, from what she once said. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, she once said, who said to her friends, we will, with her friends, we will run after you, she said, who spoke of how his love was better than wine, who delighted to sit under him as under an apple tree and to enjoy his fruit that was sweet to her taste who lay awake at night 
listening for him to come, and delighted when she heard him coming like a stag, leaping across the mountains. He was discerning that, that he was on the way, that he was near. No longer does she ask the wind to blow upon her garden that her spices may flow out for him and that he might come and enjoy her. That's not really in her thoughts anymore. She said, she had said, that's what she said at the end of chapter four, just two verses ago, to, to be that garden that he would come and delight in. All that has changed. Surely when she said it, she meant it. She couldn't imagine that things could possibly change. Surely she would be enraptured with him forever in the way that her devotion was at that time. But now, alas, she sleeps. But she also recognizes that things are not completely ruined. Things could be a lot worse. Though she sleeps, she says her heart is still awake. She still, if you ask her, loves him. She has not rejected him. She has not turned aside to another husband or to idols. She knows that she does not want a different husband than him. She has no intention of leaving him or anything like that. She is not even angry with him. She still has a lot of appreciation for him and for what he's done for her. And she knows that the things of praise that she has said to him are true. She still wants to follow him. She still wants to live in his house. She has not become a drunkard or a seductress or turned to pornography. She does not curse him or break the Sabbath. Nothing like that. She has not rejected his statutes and commandments. She is still wanting to, even even willing to talk to him and to listen to him to a certain extent. She does the basics. She goes to church. She says her prayers. She reads his word. She gives her tithes. She cares for his children. She is not so far gone that she has abandoned the basics, but the enthusiasm for him is gone. Her zeal is gone. She no longer pours herself out for him. Her heart is awake. She has not forgotten him. She has just grown tired and sluggish in her relationship with him. She doesn't yearn to have close communion with him, but is content now to have distant communion with him. She has gone to sleep, but yet her heart is still awake. It is a mixed condition. These are times in our relationship when it can be characterized by the words that Jesus used with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And they went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray before Jesus was betrayed and arrested and and taken to be crucified. When he said, Mark 14, 38, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, we have these two aspects to us. We have our flesh, which is what we are in ourselves, in Adam. And then we have the, the new life that God has given us. We, and that would be what is referred to as the spirit here. So Jesus urges them to pray, you see, but they kept sleeping. They were not against him, but they were weak in their zeal and their devotion to him. It was right before this, you know, that they had said, the way that the bride feels in Song of Solomon, that, you know, we'll never leave you. We won't ever forsake you. We won't ever deny you. And then here they are, 
before they had even done that. They had not done that yet, and yet they're sleeping in a time of prayer. We have our flesh, not just our bodies, but the remaining corruption of sin. Paul said, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Paul spoke of himself in Romans 7, 18 and 19, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Not in me, myself, and what I am apart from the working of God. He says, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, the spirit is willing, I do not do, the flesh is weak. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. His spiritual heart is not dead, you see. It's still for God. He still wants to do good, but he finds that he is sleeping and sluggish in actually performing what is good. The bride of Christ knows times when that is very prevailing with the way that things are for us. If you're a member of the bride, the believing church, then you know such times. But look, see how our gracious husband comes to us at such times to arouse us. This speaks of the real experiences that we have with him. She knows him. She says, the voice of my beloved. She recognizes, she knows that it is him. This is an exclamation, not a sentence. In, the, in our English Bibles, it says, it is the voice of my beloved. You notice those are in italics because they're not in the original. She's actually exclaiming here. She's, oh, he's here. The voice of my beloved. There he is. The previous phrase can even be translated, I sleeping, my heart waking, so that his voice has aroused her from that sleep that she has been in. Some say it can be aggressive. I was sleeping when my heart was awakened. Or perhaps the meaning could even be, I was about to fall asleep when I was suddenly awakened. Whatever the case, his voice has broken through in the same way that Jesus' voice kept breaking through to his disciples when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were dozing off asleep, and then he came to them and he said, do you still sleep? And they, they woke up, oh, it's his voice again. It's his voice again. And then they maybe prayed for a few minutes, and then they uh, drifted right back off into their, their lethargy and their, their, strug, their, their sluggishness. You know this as a believer. You know such times. You have become spiritually sluggish, but then you you hear a call from the Lord. Somebody says something. You read something that strikes you. Maybe you're reading the Bible in just a superficial way, but then something comes and it's the voice. It's His voice. And you recognize it. The exact phrase, actually, that's used here is used also in chapter 2, verse 8. The voice of my beloved. Only there, it's in contrast with what we have here. In 2.8, His voice was heard with delight. She was listening. And then she says, ah, the voice of my beloved, because he's coming. And here, she's she's all sluggish. And then she goes, oh, it's the voice of my beloved. You know, he's here. He's here. He's here again. She's not really that excited about it. It's more that she's disturbed this time. Before, she wanted him to come and break in. This time, she's disturbed. More about that later. See his passionate appeal to his sleeping wife. Again, this is his passionate appeal to us as his bride when we are in this state. First, it says, still verse 2, 
he knocks saying, open for me. Now the word knock that is used here is a strong word. By that, mean I, by that I mean that it is a strong sort of knocking. It could even be what is done with a hammer or something. Not that it is in this case. But it's knocking that, that speaks to us and it says, the knocking speaks to us and it says, open to me. It's quite clear what he wants. He wants us to open to him so that what? He can come in. We have shut him out. He wants to be intimate with us, but we have closed and locked the door to our heart. He wants us to be the way we were when our heart leapt for joy and enthusiasm to hear him coming. When we opened and welcomed him as soon as he appeared. When we freely gave ourselves fully to him, wanting him to taste our fruit. He will not tolerate this distance from him as the status quo. He's not going to leave the relationship like that. And let me say something to husbands here. You should not allow your marriage to fall into such a state either. It is not the way that we ought to be with him as our husband. So he comes to to deal with this thing. See how he then says, he knocks, saying, open to me. That's the first thing, a direct appeal. And then see how he nevertheless also addresses her with sweetness here. He says, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He does not chastise us. He doesn't say, my frigid one, my irritating one, my ungrateful one. No, the Lord of glory addresses us through the door that we have closed on him. It's wrongly shut him out as my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. What an appeal he makes here. These are terms of endearment. And perhaps husbands can learn something about that as well. If they're having to speak to their wife about the the coldness in their relationship. He, the high king, calls us his sister. He is not ashamed to to do so. A sister is a sibling that is more equal even than a husband-wife where the husband has authority over his wife. This is a brother-sister kind of a thing. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. Why? Because he redeemed us by his blood. The captain of our salvation was made perfect through sufferings. And he has indeed redeemed us. My love. That's the next thing he says. The word that we saw before in the Song of Solomon. Do you remember it? It spoke of someone that was a companion that you delight in. You can love someone that is perhaps someone that is in great need that you reach out to and you you come to them to help them and aid them because you love them. But this is the kind of love where you, you have an affection, a fondness, a delight to be with them. And that's the word that wonderfully is used in the Song of Solomon. He doesn't just look at us as this wretched mess that he puts up with, but he looks at us as that which he, those that he delights in as his companions, as his is his friend, you see, my love. And then my dove, you remember that? It speaks of, the, uh, of her devotion to him, that she's not going after other lovers. If someone is said to have dove's eyes, as it says in another place, it means that they have eyes only for one person. And then he says, my perfect one. Where there is uh, sometimes translated blameless. This is the word that is used of Job, that he was a blameless man uses it several times of him. She is described that way, even though she shut the door on him and is refusing to open the door. 
Surely these terms should melt all the resistance that is in us. We are sinners, yet he has taken us to be his beloved bride that he cherishes. A husband is supposed to cherish his wife that he delights in. He, he found us, we're told, in our blood, defiled, unclean, unloved, a stench to all who saw us. And he took us in. He washed us and redeemed us and sanctified us. And now he delights in us. And now he speaks to us then as his sister, his love, his dove, his perfect one. Surely the love of Christ constrains us to live up to these titles, to open to him and to let him come in, to think that the Lord of glory, the King of kings, has chosen us to be his bride and that he wants to be with us. And he's saying, open to me. I want to be intimate with you. Not only is his appeal then a direct appeal, open to me, and a sweet appeal, my sister, my love, my dove, my spouse, we see thirdly, it is also a passionate appeal. He describes himself as out in the weather as long as he is estranged from her, distanced from her. He says, open to me, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. The dews in Israel are known to be very heavy at night, like being out in the rain almost, where you get drenched. When King Nebuchadnezzar was turned into a beast, one of the things that was said of him was that the dew was on him and that he was, he was out in the dew, out in the weather, in the cold. The Lord of glory himself is telling us, and this is remarkable, brothers and sisters, he is telling us that as long as we keep him shut out, it is though he is in, as though he is in the cold night air. What condescension of the Lord of glory who reigned in heaven from all eternity with the Father that he should come down here and make himself such that he can speak of his great love for us in this way. And it is true of him, isn't it? Is, he, is this not true of his love that, that it pains him when we have pushed him aside? Think of what he did that he might redeem us, that he might have us. He redeemed us from Satan, to, from bondage. He came with his mighty sword, as we sing of in Psalm 45, to rescue us from the dragon that, that he might bring us home with him as his bride. He rescued us from bondage so that we can serve him. You have that picture in Egypt with being delivered from Pharaoh so that they can come and serve the Lord. He also purchased us at the highest price from the debt that we owed to his father. He had to shed his precious blood, which we're told is more precious than gold and silver, costly stones that perish. Such a bride price has never been paid by any bridegroom. He also had transformed us, has transformed us from our corruption that we might turn that, that we might turn to what is right and true instead of what is false and defiled and crooked. He's changed us. He's renewed our minds. He's given us a new heart and a new way to walk with him. And now he must continue to teach us to love what is good and to hate what is evil as he works in us. 
No husband ever did so much for his wife. No husband ever loved his wife like the Lord Jesus loves his bride. No husband ever went to such lengths for his bride as Christ went to the lengths that he went to for us. And this husband with this love is here shut out by her in the cold. How it pains him to be shut out. That's what is described by this picture with him dripping with dew all over him outside, shut out. Did he not say of his people when he was here and when he walked among us, Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He said, I don't care about that old place. No, he said, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Keep in mind, as we think about the Song of Solomon, that the taking someone under a wing is a picture in the Bible of marriage. You remember when Boaz and uh, Ruth that talked about taking Ruth under his wing was a, was a way of describing marriage. So what we have here, then you see, is from him in this verse, a clear, sweet, passionate appeal to us. It's clear and direct, it's sweet and gentle, and it's passionate to his church when we have fallen into spiritual slumbers. Surely this calls for a warm response from us. Surely this would draw out from us an ardent affection and a restoration to him for having shut the door on him as this. But see how we coldly continue to refuse to open to Jesus, our gracious husband. We rebuff him. We leave him out in the cold. We make stupid excuses. So frigid so disrespectful, so cold to the one who to us is so warm. Let's look at our our objections. There are two of them, both in verse 3. The first one is this. Now we have to think about these a little bit. The first one is this. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? The word translated robe here refers to dress clothes. So if we take this in the most literal fashion, we're saying that, okay, so I'm in bed, there's a knock at the door. If I'm going to answer the door, then I've got to get up and, and put my dress clothes on again so I can go and open the door and let him come in. Uh, surely a nightgown would do or a tunic, you know, you could wrap around yourself to, to go and open the door. But I think that we should get into the allegory here a little bit more because there's a more being said here. We're talking about, remember what we're talking about in the analogy. We're we're talking about opening up to him, about being intimate with him and letting him come in. That requires us to rouse ourselves from our sleep and to prepare for him, doesn't it? We have to warm ourselves up to him, to consider him and and to consider and and to, to to. grow that affection, to develop that, to, to clothe our, and we have to clothe ourselves with the righteous garment that he has given us. Isn't that true? If you're going to really be intimate with Jesus, you have to recognize that apart from faith in him and the righteous garment that he gives us to justify us, his righteousness, we can't really come to him because we're playing games. We're trying to act like that that, you know, we don't need that justification. We don't need that garment. We don't need that righteousness. Like the person that went to the wedding that we read about that didn't have the garment on. 
So there's something that we have to do. And it's an inconvenience. Not that we haven't already done that, but you see, when we come to Him, we have to renew the fact that, that, that this, is how we, this is how we're reconciled to Him. This is, we, we have to dress ourselves. There's, there's some preparation. You can't just lay there half asleep. We have to look at who He is, His grace, His kindness, His glory, His beauty, His saving work, His sacrifice for us. If we're going to be intimate with Him, we have to warm up to Him, as it were. That's how we get ready to receive Him. That's how we dress ourselves for intimacy and communion with our Lord. It does indeed require effort. It does indeed require us to wake up. And it's not pleasant to our sinful flesh to truly, truly go to Him. We'd rather keep a comfortable distance and talk to Him outside the door. We'd like to just stay in our slumber rather than having to go through this. However, it's not so hard to prepare as we would pretend because he is the one who provided us with the garment of righteousness that we wear. And we just have to trust in him and approach him coming with the joy of his righteousness and of having communion with him who has been so kind to us. The second objection is this. I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? Now, again, on the face of it, we're saying that we don't want to get out of bed because we, then we'd have to wash our feet again, which in a way doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, in this part of the, the world, you know, that, that at this time they would go out with their sandals on and their feet would get dirty because it's dusty and everything on the roads and they would come in and, and wash their feet, obviously, and then you wouldn't go to bed with your you know, mud caked on your feet and everything and, and then you'd go to bed. And... Uh, yet here, she's just talking about getting out of bed. I mean, is her house that dirty that she has to wash her feet all over again? You know, what is this talking about? It's a ridiculous objection. In a way, it's meant to be ridiculous because these excuses are ridiculous, all of them. But again, the sense of the allegory. What are we talking about here? What is the allegory talking about? It's talking about having intimacy with Christ. We are clever enough to know that if we're going to open up to him, to be, infinite, to be intimate with him, then we're going to be exposed. Okay, we're, we're clever enough to know that. We're going to have to deal with some sin that we have not dealt with for a while while we've been spiritually sleeping. And we don't want to do that. We've not been maintaining our walk with him. And we don't really want to face that. This is referred to here as washing our feet, the same way that Jesus referred to it with, with Peter and the other disciples in the upper room when they, Peter said, wash me all over. And he said, you've already been washed all over, Peter. You've already been, you've already been baptized. You've already been converted. I've washed you. You've come to me. You've, you've trusted me for salvation. But you've, you've been soiled. And sin soils us every day. And we have to have a, have a refreshment, a cleansing that goes on. And the ultimate washing has already happened. It's to deal with the sins as they are committed. We object here that we've already washed our feet. We've already confessed our sins. You know, before we went to bed, yeah, we, we, already, we already said, forgive me for my trespasses, and, 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 and we went to bed. You know, we're good. We're good. We don't need to do this. We don't need to do this again because we know it was superficial because we're, we're, we're sleeping. Well, yeah, we did it in our own superficial way, but Jesus is calling to do it in a genuine way. 
He's calling us to do it in a way where we really come to Him, not where we say the words and go through the ritual and the motions. He's talking about where we really come and deal with things that we need to deal with because we're being intimate with Him. Saying our formal prayers was enough for us, but He wants something much more. He wants us to truly open ourselves up to Him, and He will come in. How disrespectful this response is from the bride of Christ to his advances. It is disrespectful because we're suggesting that his request for intimacy is unreasonable. We're asking these questions, you see. Well, how could I do this? How could I? I've taken my rope. How could I put it on again? How could I? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them and have to wash them again? You're asking me, Lord, to do something that is unreasonable, something that you should not have asked me. Now, it's true that husbands can be selfish and demanding in their advances toward their wives. It's not so with Christ. He requests, his requests for intimacy are, not ever, are never unreasonable. And it's very wrong for us to speak to him as if they were. An outright refusal would have probably been more respectful than turning it over to him as if he has done something that is inappropriate in order to salve her own conscience of not wanting to wake up and come in and deal with this. We can sound so convincing when we talk like this. How can I put my robe on again? Do you realize what you're asking me to do here? I can't do that. How can I wash my feet again? Sounds so convincing to us. But it's so frivolous. We need to stop pretending that our excuses are anything other than frivolous. You need to get up and you need to let him come in. You need to warm yourself up for him and you need to confess those sins that you're clinging to. Arise, sleeper, and let him come in. This is disrespectful, secondly, because essentially you're telling him that he is not worth the trouble of putting yourself out putting yourself out for him. You're saying that he is unworthy of your love, unworthy of the trouble of getting clothed, of cleaning yourself up. You have lost sight of his glory. If I come to you, I'm going to get dirty, and I don't want to do that. I want to stay here, even though she was already dirty, you see, but I'll know I'm dirty, and then I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to wash. You've lost sight of his glory here. You have forgotten how gracious he is, how gentle, how full of love, how how good is his fruit is to your taste. How sweet it is to sit at his feet and learn of him. If you saw clearly like you did in the past, you would consider it a delight to get clothed for him and to come to him and, and, and see the things that need to change in you as you commune with him and to rejoice to be able to change those things for him. If you love someone, you're eager to, to put out for them. So it is disrespectful because she's saying he's not worthy. And thirdly, this is disrespectful because you act as if it will harm you to come to him, to, to warm up to him, to put on righteous garments that he gave you, to confess and forsake your sin. This is going to damage you. This, is, this you say to the one who gave himself to free you from Satan, the one who atoned for your sin by his own blood, the one who transformed you by his Holy Spirit. He did that when you first came to him, and now he wants to harm you? 
now because he invites you to come and be intimate with him, this is something destructive to you? Is he out to destroy his people? Is he out to harm his people? To ask them to do something unreasonable that will hurt them? It is so wrong for you to act like that. It will not harm you to come to him. It will never harm you to come to him. All it will harm is your sinful flesh and your sinful, selfish pride and your blindness and ignorance. All that is corrupt and twisted and defiled, that's what it will harm if you come to him. It will do you much, much good to open to him. By avoiding him, you are in fact denying yourself of happiness, blessing, purity, hope, joy, holiness, security, maturity, learning, and a whole host of other things. This is what you do if you're left to yourself. Okay, even you, you fall into this spiritual stupor and even when you hear his voice and you know it's him, you say, oh, go away, go away. I'm not interested. You lay in bed slumbering. You do not arise and open yourself to him. You refuse to put yourself out for him. Left to ourselves, we would never wake up. We would stay asleep from, from now on. But we are not left to ourselves. And that's the good news. Our faithful husband refuses to leave us sleeping. See how he wakes us up. He reaches forth to us with his hand of power. Verse 4 begins, My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door. Remember, again, that in the allegory, the bride is the one who is closed to her husband. It is the, the wife is closed to her husband. It is the door to intimacy with her that he is asking her to open so that he may come in. So now he reaches forth his hand and either puts it, as it says in our translation, by the latch. People have all kinds of different ideas about how this is translated. Or, or by the, it, literally the word latch is hole here, as it's used eight other times in the Bible, a hole or a cave. Uh, put his hand by the latch or in the latch. Whenever, there's it, it, all different ways, as I say, of, of uh, interpreting it, that he has reached in or through the hole or that he's put his hand beside that. Whenever the Bible speaks of the Lord's hand, or his finger, or his arm, what does it talk about? It's talking about his almighty power, isn't it? When Moses did signs before Pharaoh, and then the magicians were trying to copy them, they, they did a few of them, but then it came to a point where they said, this is what? The finger of God. This is the hand of God, or the arm of God. This is almighty power. This is divine. We're dealing with something divine here that we can't match. It is the arm of the Lord that is said to destroy his enemies. It is the arm of the Lord that rescues his people. Isaiah asks, to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? And what is that parallel with? Who has believed our report? So what happens when the mighty power of God comes to a sinner? They believe the report. When the arm of the Lord, the mighty arm of the Lord that saves, comes to a person as revealed to them, then they believe the report, the gospel, the good news of salvation. It is his hand then that reaches to open our hearts to him. It is a most powerful work of divine sovereign grace. You think about Lydia when under the word of God preached 
it says that the Lord opened her heart. That's what's going on here. Psalm 110, your people will be made willing volunteers in the day of your power. That word that I translated willing volunteers is a word that's used in Leviticus to speak of a willing offering, a free will offering. We become one who offers freely. So we're not talking about him forcing his way in when he reaches his hand in, but we're talking about a transforming, powerful hand of grace that causes her to voluntarily come to him, to gladly come to him so that she has been changed through and through from the heart and now she delights in him and she desires him. You see that that is the result when he reaches forth his hand to us when we were all shut up. Verse 4 says, My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door and my heart yearned for him. Everything changes now for her, her whole attitude. She was so stubborn that she would have never come, but now he has put forth his hand and she is again yearning for him. Verse 5 goes on to tell us that she arose. She got right up and went to open to him and the door to him. And in verse 6, that she did open the door for him. Now it tells us something else there too, that he was gone. We're not going to get into all that until next time. We'll have a lot to say about that. But what I want, for now, what I want you to see is that the Lord, in His grace, does not leave His bride sleeping. He comes to her when she sleeps, and He rouses her, and He wakes her up so that she is restored to Him again. We may resist His call for a time. We may resist His call for a long time. But eventually, He will reach forth His hand, and we will respond. We will willingly give ourselves to Him then as a free will offering. We will open up to, for Him to come in. It is His grace that awakens us. How good it is when we finally open ourselves to Him so that He comes in. So that we can freely give ourselves over to Him. So that we can pour our lives out wholly for Him. All the glory goes to Him for transforming us. Now, let's think about that. Even where we're going to see her going after him in the, the, the passage that follows, she is in a way better condition then, even though she can't find him, she's in a way better condition than she was when she was sleeping and resisting him. When she was sleeping and resisting him, she really shouldn't come to the Lord's table. But when she was pursuing him and yet couldn't find him, then by all means, she should be at the Lord's table. And of course, when she finds him and rejoices with him, all the more. But how good it is when we finally come to him. So, so what about you today? Have you opened to him at all, initially? And if you have, if you are his and like her, you have a heart for him, are you sleeping though? Are you spiritually asleep and sluggish? Are you having intimacy with Christ? Do you have real communion with him or do you just go through the, the motions of being a Christian in a ritual kind of a way? Maybe you've even cast aside some of the rituals that are part of your duty, even gone beyond where she did. But I tell you, if your heart, if your heart is for him, then you need to come and wake up and, and respond to his call and his voice. He has the power of his gracious hand. It will do his sovereign work in you. Please stand and let's ask him to 
keep us and to do this work. Gracious Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we come before you now with thanksgiving and gratitude. We praise you, Lord, that you have redeemed us and that you have purchased us with your own blood. We praise you, Lord, that you did this so that we could have communion with you. You did not do this just so that we wouldn't have to pay the price of sin and would have to be punished in hell. But you did it so that we could come and live with you, so that we could be your bride, so that we could live in your house, so that you could love us and cherish us, and so that we would love you and cherish you and respond to you. We pray, O Lord, that we would realize that this is the purpose of our relationship with you. It's not just about getting away from, from being punished, but it's about living with you in a, in a sweet relationship of husband and wife. And I pray that, Lord, we would come to you with gladness. We pray that you would so work in our heart that we would be volunteers, that we would desire to come, that we would want to, to open ourselves up to you, that we would stop running away and hiding, stop making stupid excuses where we are, are resisting you and putting you off, as if coming to you would harm us, as if somehow it would disadvantage us or that you have asked us to do things that are unreasonable. Oh Lord, we recognize that you never ask us to do anything unreasonable. Even if you ask us to to completely give up our life and to die, that you have not asked us to do what is unreasonable for you. Indeed, Lord, you have promised us an everlasting inheritance with you. And we pray that we would delight in the hope that we have and that we would live for you each day, that we would keep an account, uh, uh, that, we would, that we would keep a, that we would stay close to you, that when we have sinned, that we would deal quickly with our sin, that we would wash our feet regularly. And Father, we pray that we would truly wash our feet, not in a ritual way. We also pray that we would truly warm ourselves to you, remembering who you are and what you have done, and how that you are the one who has provided righteousness for us, that we may come to you not in a superficial way, but in the way that you have appointed. The only way that we can come if we're going to be honest about who we are and honest about who you are. Father, we don't want to have a relationship where we're pretending that we're something and pretending that you are something that you are not. We want to come to you, O Lord, in the way that you have made for us to come. As Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So, Lord, we thank you for what has been revealed to us in the gospel and for the hope that it gives to us and for the joyful fellowship that it brings us into with our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated and let's prepare to come to the Lord's table. The blessing of the King of kings and Lord of lords who has taken us as his bride. May the Lord your God be with you as he was with your fathers. May he not leave you nor forsake you that he may incline your hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and judgments which he commanded your fathers. Indeed, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.